Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm still woe. On today's Stone Choir, we're going to be discussing the subject of the church. And we'll talk about the definition, the form, and the scope of the church, and what we mean when we use that in different contexts. Before we get into the subject, just a brief bit of housekeeping. Uh, this is the end of the calendar year, almost the end of 2023 as we're recording this. So Christmas is in a couple weeks. The church calendar just began a couple weeks ago with the advent of Advent, because that's what that word means. So we decided that next week we're going to be doing the church calendar. And this week we thought that before getting into the details of the blessing of the calendar that the church has given us throughout history, we should probably define what church means first. So we are going to do that now, and then next week we'll have the calendar. These will probably both be shorter episodes, kind of give you guys a little bit of a break as we get into the Christmas season. And we're going to be taking two weeks off uh, because the following week is going to be Kwanzaa, where we would normally record, and I don't roll on Kwanzaa. No, we're, we, we didn't want to... Uh, we didn't want to record during Christmas week, and because when we record, we pretty much immediately begin worrying about the following recording. We're going to take the next week off just so I can actually, we can both have a break kind of the week of Christmas. So after next week, the following recording that we release will be on the 10th of January. So just give you a heads up, there will be a, a two-week break. You can go back and listen to previous episodes if you feel like there's good stuff back there. Today, as we're discussing church, I want to give you just a very brief example in three sentences that probably apply to virtually everyone listening. You were baptized into the church. You joined a church. You attended a church. Now, for virtually everyone, all three of those sentences are true. All three of those sentences, the direct object is the noun church. And yet, in each of those, church means something slightly different. They're all fundamentally related, but they're all essentially different forms or different levels or layers of forms of the same thing. And so today we're going to be talking about the particular forms of the church. I want to say up front that this is not intended to be a fiddly philosophical episode. This isn't, we're trying, not trying to make some sort of big-brained, needless taxonomy of things. The specific reason for tackling the different forms of church is that when there are discussions among Christians, functionally you can only ever really talk about one of those at a time. So we'll talk about those distinctions in this episode. But when you're talking about them, like when you're talking about the big C church, you're not talking about it in the same context as you're talking about your local congregation or about your denomination, which are kind of the, the first. You know, the first is the big C church, the second is a denomination or you know, church body, and then the third is your local congregation. And we'll refer to those throughout this in, in places as first, second, and third, just for the sake of clarity. It's only really possible when you're in discussion to talk about one of those or maybe two of them at once. But it's never possible really to functionally talk about all three because there's there's not a context where all three of those apply. So we'll get into that. And so I just the reason that this is important is that a lot of people will try to set them against each other. You know, particularly there's long in particularly in the American context been a movement against organized church or organized religion, which is a new term. It's something that's I think probably fundamentally American. And it certainly sounds American to sort of reject any form of joining or 
partnership with others. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you ever see videos of uh, public events in Europe, you know, maybe like a, a concert or something, some sort of performance, when crowds start clapping, European crowds in particular will very frequently rapidly start clapping in unison where their, their claps will all con- will, will all end up on the same beat. So they're all clapping as one. Americans never, ever, ever do that. That's not, that's fundamentally different than us. We will d- go different volumes, different rotations of the hands, different loudness. Like it's, we're going to do our own thing when we're Americans. It's very much a part of our spirit. And it's, it's different than most of Europe. I don't know that that's necessarily always bad, but that spirit in the context of church in general is not good. And we'll get into why that is. So it's a lot of times when someone says one version of the church, they're going to be doing it in rejection to the other. And you're going to say, I, I don't want, you know, deeds, not creeds. I don't want anything that's come from an organized church. I'm a non-denominational, independent, whatever church. It's, there's just one of us. There's Pastor Jim in his King James Bible, and we believe what it says, and we're all by ourselves doing our own thing, and we're being faithful. We're going to make the case for why that causes problems, and it's not good for anyone. But first, we have to understand kind of what the broader context is. So this, is, again, is not we're not trying to be fiddly and philosophical. We're trying to help make everyone able to understand and to communicate clearly when we're talking about these things. Because if I say church, and I mean one thing, and you're thinking of church in another context, we're automatically going to talk past one another. And that's, it's needless. It's it's frustrating and causes miscommunication and a lot of times, you know, arguments and hurt feelings when there's no need. It's important to understand where we disagree, and there's plenty of disagreement among Christians for good reason. But when we're not even using the same words in the same way, we create a mess. So the first one we're going to talk about is the capital C Church. And fundamentally, what is meant by that in all times and all places is all believers, the the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We are members of one body with Christ as our head. That is the capital C Church. That is all saints living and dead. We are all unified. All Christians who have the Holy Spirit are members of that church. And this is the reason, for example, that we as Lutherans in particular, and I think most Protestants, flatly refuse to acknowledge Rome's claims, for example, in the West, that Rome is the Catholic Church, capital C meaning universal or according to the whole. When Rome says Catholic, it is saying we're the whole thing, we're the capital C Church, and if you're outside of Rome, you are outside of the Church. And that was what the Reformation was fundamentally about. Can you still be Christian without the Pope? That was a lot of ink was spilled and blood was shed over that question because the argument was made, obviously we believe correctly, that it is possible to be Christian without being Roman Catholic. They're not mutually exclusive. We certainly recognize that there were many Christians in Rome before that day and since that day, including today. Even in the state that Rome is in today, we still gladly and thankfully acknowledge that there are many Christians among them. The only way that that works, as we talked in the Reformation episode, is if there is something larger than the denominations, which is the second sort of church that we're now talking about, where Rome is one example, the second, Lutheran is another, and 
you know, the, the Catholic answers boilerplate snark is that after the Reformation, there were 30,000 dominations, which is complete nonsense. It's a lie. But we do agree that it was bad for that fracture to exist. The reason for the fracture would be was because of disagreement over theology, over what Scripture says. And that is the reason at the second split. And at the third, you have the basic unit of Christian life, which is the local congregation, which in some ways to us as individuals matters the most because it's the one, it's the one that's immediate. You know, the capital C church, the eternal church, the bride of Christ, you can't see it. You can't touch it. It doesn't have a mailing address. Denominations have mailing addresses. There are men with names and addresses who are responsible for whatever those denominations do. So that's something that's concrete, but is generally distant. What is local is your actual congregation. It's your, you know, your family. It's your friends and your neighbors all gathering together in one physical place around, hopefully, the word and sacrament of God. That is where God comes among us in a particular way akin to, not identical to, but akin to what was found in temple worship. Now, things have changed with, with the advent of a new covenant. I'm not making a, that sort of claim, but the gathering of the faithful has always existed. You know, wherever, throughout the Old Testament, whenever something special happened, they built an altar. They worshiped God right there and named the place. And from then on, that place was considered holy and special and had a name oriented around something godly. When Christians gather together, that is the local gathering of the faithful. And where that happens, it's participation in the first. It's participation in the capital C Church. Usually, it's also a participation in the second. So as we talk about this today, we're kind of trying to figure out where the boundaries are between those, where one slides into the other, and what happens when you confuse them, and sometimes when they're frankly at odds with each other. You know, one of the fundamental reasons for doing this episode is not only to eliminate confusion, but frankly, not to bury the lead, but we are in a position, all of us today, where many of the second type of church, you know, the dominations, are departing the faith in small ways and in big ways. And as this happens, our local congregations are faced with a dire and unprecedented question of, what do we do? If you're part of something bigger, and the bigger thing separates itself by its false confession from the biggest thing, from the first church, what do you, as, as the third form of the church, what, what do you do? How do we, as in the third position, remain faithful to the first when the second's getting in the way? So there's been a lot of ink spilled over the years, over the centuries, about dealing with this stuff. And thankfully, as Lutherans, we have some of the best written theology from past centuries addressing this. But it's important to understand why these things emerge, why they're important, and how we can preserve them faithfully. On the note of Lutheran theology written in the past on this particular topic, I will again take the opportunity to point out that CPH needs to release many of their materials into the public domain because these are resources that belong to the church and should be available for any Christian to read. These are not things that should be copyright encumbered, particularly given some of them are written many years ago and really should not be in copyright at all, but that is a separate issue we've covered in another topic. We will link to some of those in the show notes, so 
Unfortunately, you will have to purchase them because they are generally not available publicly. You may be able to find a PDF. I don't know if those are available. At any rate, I want to start by reading a couple of paragraphs from Peeper, one of the dogmaticians of the LCMS, who does a great job on this and basically every other issue that he addresses in his three-volume work on dogmatics. The first is just a general definition of what the Christian Church is. The Christian Church consists of all those, and only those, who believe in Christ. Since, however, an anti-scriptural meaning is today given the words, believe in Christ, we must make our definition more specific and say, the Christian Church is composed of all those, and only those, in whom the Holy Spirit has worked the faith that for the sake of Christ's vicarious satisfaction, their sins are forgiven. And so that's the definition of that first level of church, capital C, church. It is composed of all believers throughout all time. Those who lived before Christ's life on earth, death and resurrection, believed in the Messiah who was to come. Those of us living after that believe in the Messiah who has come. It's always belief in Christ that makes one a member of the church, and that faith is always a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a work of man. And then second, a more extended definition of the Christian church and commentary on a couple other matters from Peeper. In short, according to Lutheran teaching, it is faith in the gospel, which in every case establishes membership in the Christian church, both C's there, uppercase. To him who believes the gospel, membership in the Christian church may not be denied. Of him who rejects the gospel, membership in the Christian church may not be asserted. Excommunication pronounced against true believers does not deprive them of membership in the church. Also, those who in their ignorance believe false doctrines are members of the church, whether they belong to an orthodox or heterodox church body, if only they cling sincerely to God's grace in Christ. Also, lack of baptism if there was no opportunity to receive baptism, does not deprive believers of membership in the Christian church, because baptism is not absolutely necessary, as was shown in the Locus di Baptismo, the title or section on baptism. And so here we have a more extended version of what it means to be a member of that capital C church. Again, you enter the church through faith. It is belief in the gospel, which is to say, Christ's vicarious satisfaction for sin. That is what makes one a member of Christ's church. And you are a member of Christ's church by virtue of that faith, not by virtue of membership in a synod or an overarching church body, lowercase c, or even a local congregation. Now, it is good to be a member of those insofar as they are teaching rightly. But to be a member of Christ's church is to have faith. That is a matter of God. That is not a matter of men. Men do not get to declare whether you are a member of the church or not a member of the church. They can declare whether you are a member of a corporation or not, but that is a different matter. That is typically the form that the second level of church takes. So you have a synod, or you have Rome, or you have whatever the body happens to be in various traditions. That is a different thing from the uppercase, capital C, church. Now, those second-level bodies should be faithful, 
and insofar as they are faithful, they are in fact parts of the uppercase C church. But you as an individual Christian, ultimately your membership in the church is a membership in that uppercase C church. Now, as we've mentioned already, and will undoubtedly say a number of additional times in this episode, you should still be a member of a local congregation. And if possible, that local congregation should be a member of a larger community of churches. That's what it means to have that life together as Christians. We are not to forsake the gathering together of the saints. As a first-order matter, that means don't forsake your local congregation. Now, we have to add the caveat, and this is unfortunate, but we have to do it today. If you do not have any faithful local bodies, we are absolutely not saying that you have to attend an unfaithful or a faithless supposed church. It may be that for a certain amount of time you will have to have basically what is a home church. Now, is it fully a church in the sense of a traditional congregation constituted of local believers? Over time, perhaps it could become that. But to start off, no, it's more of a Bible study. Now, that is still fellowship with the saints. That is still important. You can still study God's word. But it is not that full communion that you should have with a local congregation. Because of the reality of the situation in which we find ourselves, that sort of thing may be necessary. If not today, then maybe in the not-so-distant future. And that is, again, better than the alternative of simply being isolated and not having that fellowship with other Christians. It's not ideal, that's the point. But sometimes the ideal is not an option. Sometimes we must do the best that we can with what we have been given in the era, in the time in which we live. And house churches are not inappropriate. Those were what we had in the early days of Christendom. That is how things started in many of the Greek and Roman areas. They started with house churches. Over time, they became more organized and became proper congregations, joined together and formed synods, larger groups, larger church bodies, all still part of that first sense of uppercase C church. We may be in a similar situation today in having to rebuild in the same way that they built originally. There are two specific examples in the New Testament that come up frequently, usually in the context of baptism, but as we made the case in the baptism episode, which is functionally a part of this, is that the thief on the cross became a member of the capital C church with his confession of his sins and with his confession of Jesus Christ as his Savior. He was also on the cross. He was about to die. He confessed. He became a Christian. He was saved. He was with all the saints that day, as Christ promised. He never joined a denomination or a congregation. He was never baptized. The crucial element there, as we made the case in the baptism episode, is that if by some miracle he had come down off that cross, he would have done those things. He would have gone and been baptized. He would have joined with other local believers every Sabbath, you know, every Sunday as things evolved, he would have lived the Christian life that every Christian was also leading. So it's an example that the second and third are not absolutely necessary for the first. However, despising the third, despising the local gathering of the saints, 
is condemned by scripture, as Corey just mentioned. And the Ethiopian eunuch is another example. He wasn't facing a death sentence, but he was from Ethiopia. He was from a place that had Jews. They had had the gospel, you know, for the from the pre-incarnate Christ for a while. But when he was convinced by the gospel and said, why should I not be baptized here? He desired baptism. He received baptism. But then he went home to Ethiopia, where probably not a lot of churches, at least not yet, they grew. And so he was in a position where he was going to a place that did not have a lot of believers. He probably went back as an evangelist in part. You know, he, he didn't leave his vocation, but he now as a believer in Jesus Christ had something new to share with people to explain to them the scriptures that we already had have been fulfilled in this man. And here's this wonderful, incredible news that all those prophecies were fulfilled. And so he would have certainly desired to gather with other believers by virtue of making others around him Christian. And I think this is a good example for us today that he was going to a place where maybe there, there weren't a lot of believers. Maybe in order for him to have a congregation locally, he might have had to make it. You know, again, there were Jews there. There were some who had certainly had faith to that point. But with the birth of Christ, it became an inflection point for the Jews. Were they going to recognize the Messiah who was promised, or were they going to rebel against God as they had done their entire history? Most continued to rebel. Some became Christians. Some continued in their belief in the Messiah and were known by a new name as Christians, but it was the same faith. They didn't switch faiths. Their faith was fulfilled in the moment of that being delivered in the body of Christ. So he was blessed that that information was transmitted to him by witnesses. But then he was going to a place where, you know, the gathering of the, of the faithful might have been, you know, a long road to hoe. It might have taken a while for there to be others. And yet, as we face similar circumstances, certainly in a day where more and more the second order church bodies have gotten weaker and weaker and more and more have apostatized, some of us are living in the wilderness now. And one of the points we want to make today is that that is no excuse for despising the gathering of the faithful. As Corey said, it may not be immediately possible for you, but insofar as it depends on you, as much as you're able, it is important to gather with others. I want to go into a little more detail, just briefly, on the issue of what it means to be in schism or to be a schismatic, because this obviously is at least tangentially related to the topic we are discussing. It was already mentioned. A short paragraph from Pieper on specifically this issue. He's actually only, he has only two paragraphs in his section in his dogmatics on schism in this context of the church. I'm just going to read the second one. Such, however, as separate from a church body because it tenaciously clings to false doctrine are unjustly called schismatics, separatists, etc. This separation is commanded in Scripture, Romans 16:17, and is the only means of restoring and maintaining the true unity in the Christian church. And so the reason this is important, this is something that is vital to understand in this context, particularly for us today, but throughout the entire history of the church, capital C, 
It is not those who dissent from false doctrine, or said another way, it is not those who insist on right doctrine who are schismatics. It is always those who insist on false doctrine or reject right doctrine. It doesn't matter if you are the only one speaking God's truth. Everyone else would then be schismatics. You would be the only person not in schism. Because when it comes down to the issue of schism, it is with regard to the uppercase C church, with regard to that first sense, the grand umbrella over all things. It is Christ's church with which you agree or with which you disagree, and that makes you a member or not a member. If you disagree with the teachings of Christ's church, you are in schism. It doesn't matter if you agree with every other person who calls himself a Christian on earth, if all of you are wrong and disagree with Scripture, you are in schism, and it can be one man who stands up and speaks the truth. That man is not in schism because he is speaking the truth of Christ's church. And so today, when we face all of these second-level bodies that are becoming apostate, or in many cases have been apostate for years, recognize that if you dissent from the false teachings of those churches, you are not in schism. Because your duty as a Christian is to hear the voice of the shepherd and listen to what he says. Your duty is to listen to God's word, to listen to Christ's word. It does not matter what that second level church body says, if it is in conflict with scripture. Now, insofar as there are issues of adiaphora, something that is not in fact binding on the Christian because it is not in fact something that is stated in God's word. In those we should bear with these second level bodies. And so if you don't like the color of the candles that are used in Advent, deal with it. Ignore it. They can be blue or purple or whatever they happen to be. It should be one of those colors. But if you disagree with something like that, let it slide. That is something where you bear with others in Christian patience. That is not something where you leave and say, well, I'm going to form my own church because I want the pyramids to be this color, or I don't like this design of the stained glass. That is not what it means. That is not the matter here. Those sorts of issues, those are adiaphora. They're important in many cases because it does matter how you decorate the church. We will get into a little bit more of that in next week's episode on the church calendar because some of these things are for teaching, a preview of that episode. But they're not things over which you split from the church. The things over which you split from the church, you must split from a false church, because Scripture commands it, are false doctrine, false teaching. First and foremost, if they do not teach rightly on the gospel. Because to stay in a church that teaches falsely with regard to the core matters of the truth of Christ, to God's matters, to God's things, is to violate your own conscience. And that is the problem here. And so if you split because of that, you are not a schismatic. You need to be comfortable with that. Because we live in a time where, again, these church bodies are teaching falsely, are becoming apostate. And it may be that you will be forced out or have to leave. That does not make you a schismatic. That does not separate you from Christ or from his church. It just separates you from a corporation. 
and that hardly matters to a Christian. I won't read the entire thing here, but I commend all of uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to everyone. Go read it. I'm just going to read a couple verses, uh, disconnect a little bit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So this is clearly one of the many passages that deals with the capital C church and with us being direct members of it. And crucially, this is a sort of spiritual connection that it doesn't bypass the local congregation, but the local congregation is where it is visible. Because the rest of that passage talks about the different gifts that God gives to us being practiced in in our local congregation, in our, in our lives with our neighbors. That's crucial because this is where God has placed us, and these the gifts that we're given as members of Christ's body, the church, are for the benefit of our brothers in Christ and our neighbors. And as Corey was saying, there's there come times where there's error, and sometimes it's small, and sometimes it's great. It if if you live in a wasteland of Christianity, which is increasingly much of the world, it may be that your local congregation, you can no longer say amen to many of the things that are there. Nevertheless, if that's still the closest to a faithful congregation in your area, maybe, you know, the, the, again, as Corey said, these are matters of conscience. There's no, there's no script for how to deal with with an environment where we see churches dying, the second and third type of churches, where they are, where their hearts are growing cold, where men are becoming evil, even as they proclaim that they are acting in the name of God. Uh, the beginning of uh, John 16 is something I quoted online earlier today. Jesus, after giving some end times prophecies, says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when your hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I think there are two crucial things going on there that don't aren't necessarily the two that stand out. The first is that whoever kills you will think he's serving God. The, the men who will persecute believers in the church will do it in the name of God in many times and places. And we've seen that in the past, and we will continue to see it in the future just as we see it right now. Often the persecution of the church comes from within what calls itself the church, which again is the distinction between the second, the first, and the third. We believe as Lutherans that the persecution of the faithful that occurred during the Reformation came from the second falsely embodying the first. We believe that there were acts of that pope in that time that were evil, and it was necessary for Christians to separate themselves. You know, initially, as we said in the Reformation episode, Luther didn't want to separate. He just wanted them to behave. It's like, hey, the Bible says this, and you're doing the other thing. Let's do the thing the Bible says. And when the response was, we're going to kill you, you know, this was John 16 being fulfilled. They threw him out, and they tried to have him murdered. Well, okay. The other thing that Jesus mentions here that 
<laughs> I think we all need to hear is that he says, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He said these things so that when they're fulfilled, we would remember. He didn't say, I'm telling you these things and I'm going to spare you. Some of us will be sacrificed as an example for others. Is that a good thing? I mean, it it might not feel like it at the time, but crucially, this is within the context of the church. This is the second church persecuting those who are members of the first in the context of the third. I hope this numbering scheme isn't confusing you. All believers, capital C, when denominations and local congregations go after individual members in ways that are ungodly, that is a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy, of in particular of an end times prophecy. This, this was certainly true in Jesus' day. It was something that came to the believers in those synagogues as they realized that being a faithful Jew meant ceasing to be a Jew and being a Christian and living a Christian life. You know, when you look at the extant populations in the territory of Palestine, they are the oldest genetic links back to this day. They are the people who have always lived there. They ceased to be Jews in many cases. They're still related by blood if you go back far enough, but not one of them would say I'm Jewish because they're just, they became Christian and then they just stayed where they lived. That's why we had so many Palestinian and Syrian Christians until fairly recently when they were rounded up and murdered by the evil people in that part of the world. This is something that's continuously happening in the church, and that's part of why I think it's always important for Christians to read those end times prophecies and to understand that there's always an immediacy to them as well. It's not simply judgment day is going to be next week. It's that we should always be prepared to have an answer for our faith, because if you are a part of the first, if you are a member of Christ's body, the capital C Church, there may well come a day when you face isolation or persecution. You know, there are many in history who have not, who have had godly princes, they've had godly kingdoms, their entire lives were surrounded by other Christians being relatively faithful, you know, certainly not perfect by any stretch, but compared to today, a wonderland. What we face today, I think, is in many ways unprecedented, where the second order churches, the denominations, are crumbling in almost all cases. We see things happening today in the church where people who are mostly mounting good defenses are still doing things like letting in the Trojan horse. They are receiving gifts from those who bear them ill will and saying, ah, yes, I want to I take this. I'm going to put this under the Christmas tree. It's a nice present. I wonder what's inside. These traps that are being invited in, I'm thinking in particular guys like Doug Wilson, who whatever else they've gotten correct, when their new big effort is to do some of the things that are openly hostile to Christian belief, to historic belief, they're leaving themselves open. They're, they're creating a vulnerability, even among places that are trying to be faithful. And this is something that's very tricky for us in the, in the congregational and in the denominational context to figure out where do you draw the line. And I think one of the hardest things for all of us is that most men are not equipped to weigh these matters. 
we're simply not equipped by ourselves to figure this stuff out. And frankly, it's one of the reasons that the historic church has given us things like creeds. You know, the, the apostles and the Nicene and also the Athanasian creeds exist specifically so that all preaching and teaching could be measured against them. Because every word of those creeds was designed to repudiate specific heresies in those days. Now, the heresies were old. You know, maybe they came roaring back in some cases, but the lies that Satan tells to believers are, they're not eternal. They're as old as Satan, but he's always telling the same lies over and over because they keep working. And so the beauty of the creeds is that brilliant and faithful men put together something very simple that a child can memorize that can be used as a benchmark to evaluate everything around it. It's one of the reasons that for, well, almost 2,000 years, the vast majority of Christian churches have confessed at least one of the creeds every Sunday. It's crucial to say those words out loud in the collective context of the the third-order congregation of the church as a benchmark, because whatever the pastor said during his sermon, if the creed contradicts something that he said, even the Christian man in the pews who's not that engaged, he's not a theologian by any stretch, if Pastor Jim said something that you hear, you're like, "That's this creed says the opposite of what that guy just said. What's going on? He may not be the man to articulate a defense for why the pastor did something false, but he can ask the question, and it's a question that's crucial in all times and all places. Like these, because Satan's not creative, he's he's going to keep doing stuff that keeps working. These old forms that the church has given us, you know, this is one of the debates that some modern, especially in the American context, Christians say things like deeds, not creeds. We've talked in past episodes about why the creeds are so important. The creeds are quotations from Scripture. They're a distillation of the words of God himself, and they're put together in a way that is entirely consistent with Scripture. And again, they were done specifically because men are going to come along and say things that are contrary to Scripture. When you can have something that's a condensed version of the entire Christian faith that a child can memorize, I know because I did it, and even like kids, you know, average kids by 10 years old can all have easily learned both of the creeds. When that is the case, when it's on your lips and it's in your heart and it's in your mind, when you hear something that sounds contrary to it, God is going to help you realize it. And that is something that is missing when you try to go off by yourself. When you say, I don't want any denominational affiliation I don't want any of this other stuff. I'm just going to do it by myself and figure it out, and I got my Bible, and I'm going to be okay. Well, in some ways, that's where Satan wants you, because you've been separated from not only the other believers who can help to strengthen your faith, but you've been separated historically from all the different ways that the church has established protections for us. In church, in that context, it's almost splitting this difference between the first and second. It kind of goes to some of the arguments that Rome made saying, no, we are the universal church. I think that, personally, I think that the appropriate Protestant view of the councils is that the ones that produced faithful doctrine were Christian men with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and with sound reason who were gifted. 
I don't think that those men needed any new special revelation to come up with the specific things like the creeds that they issued on behalf of the church, because they were making arguments from Scripture. Any man can make an argument from Scripture, and it may well be true. You don't have to be a genius, but it's important that Scripture and reason in that order are what is producing the thing. Now, you don't just go around making arguments for, for the sake of making arguments, but when there's a controversy, as, as Corey was saying, or when there's a clear error that must be repudiated, somebody's got to do it. And thankfully, when you look at church history, almost all the errors have already been made. There's very rarely some new error. We've talked in past episodes that there are a few new errors that are creeping in, the things that are assaulting creation itself, assaulting the body, that are assaulting how we are made. Are we made male and female? Are we made a particular race? Is there anything different about different types of people, and did God want to do that? That's what Satan's attacking today on egalitarian grounds. So it's not that there's never any opportunity for new discussion of the assaults, but almost everything can be predicated on past arguments because, again, they, the old lies work. People keep gobbling them up. And so when we separate ourselves from the historic views of the church, it's you're in uncharted waters. You're, you're literally off the map when you're like, I'm going to go do this by myself. Because there is a map of that place, but if you say, I'm not going to look at it, you're going to be blind, and you're going to fall into the traps that wiser, more faithful men were successfully able to navigate. And in the local congregation, whatever your denomination, whatever your church polity, it's important for you to to recognize that you, as a member of the capital C Church, as a member of the body of Christ, you are a part of all of that, whether you like it or not, whether you agree or disagree with Christians of the past. If you're going to reject the arguments that they made, you should have a good reason for it. Yeah, they weren't necessarily infallible, but if they said something like, I don't care about any of that, it's you're separating yourself from something that in all likelihood God put there for your protection. You mentioned deeds, not creeds, and really that is at the opposite end of the spectrum from some of the new heresies we see arising in the church today, because in reality, that's just a new catchphrase for an ancient heresy. It's just works righteousness. That's all deeds, not creeds ultimately is, and that ties into the episode that we did last week, really. It's, in part, this is one of the arguments to which Pieper is responding, and that was referenced in one of the quotations I read from Pieper earlier, implicitly, not explicitly, but there are those who argue that Christ came to give us an example, and that it is following his example that will bring us back into communion with God and ultimately save us. That's works righteousness. That is a heresy. That is not Christian. Believing that puts you outside the church. And that is exactly what deeds, not creeds is. Because saying deeds, not creeds, ultimately is saying, I am saved by the things I do, not by the things I believe. And that's false. You are saved by faith. Faith is belief. Again, to give the three levels of this, because this is an important thing to understand, so it bears repeating. There is notitia, which is to take notice of the fact, that is to recognize that it is said that Christ died, and that he died for these reasons. There is a sensus, 
which is to assent to the fact that Christ died, and he died for these reasons. And then there is fiducia, which is belief, that is trust. That is what saves you. That is salvific faith. Again, that is the belief that Christ died for sinners, and that you were a sinner, and that he in that death vicariously atoned for your sins. Yes, the fullness, of course, of his sacrifice is the incarnation, life, and death. But to speak in the shorthand, it is Christ crucified for sinners. That is the gospel. That is a belief. That is not a deed, except on the part of Christ. It's not one of your deeds. Your deeds will not save you. And so, in fact, it is creeds and deeds. Because, again, a living faith will produce good works. And I do want to turn to the creeds briefly to make another argument with regard to the uppercase C church for those who are concerned about really the second level of these things. What is it that we confess with regard to the church in the creeds? Well, in the Apostles' Creed, it's, I believe in the Holy Catholic or Christian Church, depending on which term you use in your version. And then there is, I believe, in the Nicene Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. If I were to hand you a coin, and you look at that coin, you're holding it in your hands, do you believe in that coin? The answer is no, because you don't believe in something you're holding and can see. You know the coin exists because you're holding it. If I tell you that tomorrow I will give you a coin, you can believe me or not believe me. And so belief is not in something that you have and hold necessarily. There's a distinction there between having and holding that coin and having the promise of the coin, the belief that I will give it to you. Now, in the case of Christ, it is the difference between those in paradise no longer have belief that they will one day see paradise because they're there. We'll ignore for now the issue of how time works for an eternal God and paradise and those things. Set that aside for the moment. But the distinction is between those who are still living here on earth in time and those who are already in paradise, or if you want to think of it that way, will be in paradise. For those of us living here, it is a matter of belief. We have belief in the promises of God. We have belief in the things of Christ. And that is the same thing we see here in the creeds. When it says, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you are saying you believe in something that you cannot grasp with your hands. You cannot go and find a building and say, this is the building that contains the church. Just as there is no throne currently on earth where you can go and say, this is the throne of Christ. This is where he sits. This is the exact physical location from which he reigns. And so when you say in the creeds, when we confess as Christians in the creeds that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, what we are saying is we believe in this first order, uppercase C, church. We are not confessing belief in any second order, synod, or church body, tradition, 
or denomination. Because those are things we can say, there it is, that's a physical thing, I can see that. And there are those who are going to say, well, a corporation is an abstraction. No. Because a corporation, you can go and physically grasp the documents that constitute the thing. You can go and look at the corporate headquarters. You can go and shake hands with the corporate officers. These are things that physically exist. You don't believe in a synod. You believe in the holy Christian and apostolic church. You believe in the uppercase C church. That is what we confess in the creeds. When we confess this in the creeds, we are not confessing that we believe in any one earthly institution. Rather, we are confessing that we believe in the Church of Christ. We believe in the Christian Church. We believe in the congregation of all saints throughout all time. And we, by faith, are members of that very Church. And that is why we confess belief in it, because that is our Church, because that is Christ's Church. The reason that things like denominational organizations are so important for the Christian life is not that by themselves they are a particular body of faith, but that the collective wisdom and strength of believers gathered together in greater numbers than you can amass in a congregation is what is necessary for the perpetuation of the faith. We see this going back to the very beginning. The church rapidly expanded. It is local congregations got bigger and bigger. More and more of them spread, and they banded together. And from the earliest days in the New Testament, we see councils forming where the men and the bishops of the various churches in various places came together to hammer out issues. That is a clear acknowledgment that some form of organization beyond the local congregation is fundamentally Christian. Now, it's fundamentally Christian in the sense that it serves a Christian end, not that it is by itself a mark of the Christian church, as Corey was just saying. So the reason that it's so important to have some form of church body is that if you are a solo congregation— you're on your own, you have a great pastor, you have great elders. When the leadership ages out, dies, moves away, whatever happens, you want to assume, you want to guarantee, you don't want to assume, you want to be able to guarantee as best as possible that those beliefs and that faithfulness will be perpetuated. And it is very often the case that the local congregation simply can't do that by itself. You know, if you have, say, you have a congregation of 100 men, maybe once every 20 generations there would be a true theologian that would emerge in such a small place. Even that, frankly, is, is preposterous. I, there may be 30 theologians alive today. They just, in terms of being able to actually do solid, faithful work and not make a hash of things, it, it's an incredibly rare gift. The benefit of having someone who understands the stakes is that pastors shouldn't be doing anything new. Pastors don't need to be doing new theology. They need to know enough theology that they don't reinvent old heresies because they didn't know any better, because it's really easy. Like, the old heresies make sense. They didn't catch on because they were tricky, wacky, crazy lies. They seemed plausible. The heretics were generally smart guys who made seemingly good arguments. They were false. They were falsifiable from Scripture, but a naive listener is usually going to gobble it up. Some of them will. 
And so in the local context, like you're just con- your congregation by itself cannot assume that it's going to be able to continue generation after generation to keep raising up faithful men who have the gift and the ability to receive a call from God to preach and teach and shepherd that flock. You can assure that sort of thing by gathering together with other similar believers. And that's the reason for, you know, in the in the very first century, why we had the church councils. And on to this day, there are denominations. Christians have always gathered together more broadly than the local congregational context because you need the best men from each congregation to come together and hammer things out. You know, maybe the best guy in your congregation is going to get something wrong when it comes up. But when that guy is put in a room with 20 other guys from the other congregations who are the best in theirs, when the right arguments are made, your your best guy, even if he didn't get it by himself, when someone else articulates it well, he's, like, he's going to say, yeah, that's it. That is what I believe. And then he will be able to bring that back to your congregation. If you lack the benefit of the more broad wisdom of the gifts that God has given, again, you know, back to the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, when you go read that, it talks about the disparate gifts that God gives men. You may be in a situation where there's no one who happens to have the specific gift that your congregation needs to perpetuate itself indefinitely. And that's okay, because those gifts are elsewhere. God will send men from somewhere else to come to you if that's what's needed. When we eschew the notion of any sort of joining together, for one thing, we're not we're departing from all of Christian history. It's simply not what Christians have done, again, until fairly recently. It's it's not exclusively an Americanism, but it's pretty close to it. The idea that you just have these crazy little solo groups that don't listen to anybody else, it's bad, it's abnormal, and it's novel. When we gather together, it's for the sake of helping each other. You know, if, and I think this is one of the, it's both a strength and a weakness of these earthly gatherings, these, these earthly denominations or synods or whatever they are. When you concentrate any form of authority, even if it's only perceived authority, that, yeah, I'm going to listen to that guy because he's good at it, it's going to tend to naturally attract the sort of men who pursue that kind of authority. And that's exactly the wrong kind of man to be in those positions. You don't want men who want glory. You don't want men who want to be in charge. You want men who understand the burden of leading others in Christ. It's a tremendous burden to have someone listen to you because it's one thing if you get something wrong and it's just your own, it's inside your head and it's your soul on the line. When you speak to others and get them to listen to what you say, you are now accountable to God for all those souls too. That is why teachers face the stricter judgment because they are endangering with false teaching everyone who will listen to them, everyone within nearshot. Anyone who would be influenced by a teacher who teaches something false, he's going to have to give an account for why he lied to those people in God's name, which is incidentally prohibited by the Ten Commandments. Cursing in God's name, lying in God's name, is telling lies about what God says. It's far worse than using foul language. That's bad, but to lie about what God said is far more damaging. Because it's not, it's not as offensive to the ears if the ears are not practiced to hear false teaching. 
when you can pick up on false teaching, it becomes much more offensive than someone who's just using very foul and blasphemous language against God. The true blasphemy, the greatest blasphemy, is that which masquerades as being Christian and leads people away from Christ, because it just happens and no one notices. That's that's the most terrifying form of this thing, which is why every congregation needs to focus on having men who are good to the best of their ability at judging these things, but also banding together with others and monitoring up and down the chain, making sure that whatever sort of alliance or grouping that you have, that other men in other places are being faithful and committed to Scripture as you are, because errors will always creep in. It's constant. In numerous places in Scripture and throughout all of history, we witness this. Men will creep in and try to mislead people because that's how Satan works. He's not, he doesn't care about the pagans. He's like, he's already destroying them. What he despises is when there are Christians gathered together who are speaking and teaching and living faithfully. That is the greater threat to him. Because if you have true Christians who are going to be the salt and light of the earth around them, they're going to pollute his pagans. They're going to turn his pagans into Christians by spreading the gospel. And so if you destroy the place where the gospel is being preserved, he can ensure that he can keep everybody. He can get more souls for his kingdom in hell. We must work together in in these synthetic groups, in these groups that do not have a particular... They're groups that don't necessarily have God's sanction in that they were ordained by God, but we were ordained to be participants in them for the sake of the Christian church, if, if that makes sense. So we, we necessarily reject, for example, Rome's claims that it is a top-down thing. Nevertheless, that is not the same thing as rejecting hierarchy or authority. Frankly, I think that Protestantism in general has far too little hierarchy and far too little authority, which today is actually a blessing because there are basically no good men who would be in those positions. The men who are in the positions that should have greater authority are already wicked. So if they had more authority, they would be doing even more damage. So in this moment, I'm thankful that they can't do more harm than they're doing. Nevertheless, that sort of creeping decay, sometimes it's from the top down and sometimes it's from the middle up where the institution gets captured and then you replace the guy at the top. And eventually, there are no more good men who can rise to that level. So the capture of the institution is, in some ways, it shows how important they are. We've talked about this in the past as well. If if these organizations, if if the second-tier church and the third-tier, like the local congregation, if these things had no value to us as Christians, Satan wouldn't care about destroying them. So even if you know nothing else, if you see that Satan is going after those things, it's a very good indication that there's actually something that God was trying to do with that. That's not the same thing as saying this is exactly what God wants and is perfect and you must submit it under all circumstances, but it's saying that in general, the gathering together of those who have greater gifts of spiritual wisdom and teaching, that is something that should be preserved and defended but it must also be kept in check because those are the very places where Satan is going to try the very hardest to sneak in the false doctrines that are going to cause everyone else to, to collapse. And we see it happen over and over again. So watchfulness is a part of being in a body. There's no way around it. And again, some men have these gifts and some men don't. 
if you don't, you need as best you can to orient your life and your and your belief around things that you know you can trust, which is why you know scripture by itself is is vital. Creeds are just another example of something that's vital. We believe as Lutherans that the Book of Concord is also something that is essential for helping to understand a lot of these conversations. We'll put a link in the show notes to a couple of different parts of the Augsburg Confession and the apology to it that deal specifically with what is the church. And I think it's a really interesting example of kind of the three parts that we're talking about here because the fight that they were having in the 16th century was that Rome was claiming to be the first and the second church and the third. They're claiming to be the whole shooting match. And the Lutherans and the other reformers were necessarily saying, no, we believe that we're still Christian, we're still part of the first, but we do reject the second that you're holding up in Rome. We're saying, we don't believe that your authority is coming from God. Nevertheless, it is important that we maintain continuity with the first, with the capital C church. And so they, there's a lot of good scriptural arguments laying out the case for the, the relationship of the first to the second. What's conspicuous is that in those days, the notion of the local congregation being something radically different from the larger church body was pretty much unthinkable. Now, there were obviously different denominations that were emerging, particularly things like, you know, some of the Anabaptists that went completely off the rails, doing things that were utterly, utterly alien to the Christian faith into all of Christian history. However, when the Reformers were thinking about church denominations, they understood that within a body, the individual congregations that made up the larger whole were going to be doing the same thing. And yet today, we don't even see that level of continuity. You know, within even the Missouri Synod, you will have congregations that are doing things that look for all the world like a concert, and you'll have others that look like a 16th century church service, and they're claiming to be in communion together when they're clearly not. You know, one of the things that Lutherans talk about is altar and pulpit fellowship, because as the the Augsburg Confession discusses when talking about the church, two of the marks of the church are the proper preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacrament that those are where the church is found, the true church. Word and sacrament is the same as pulpit and altar, because the altar is where the communion meal is found. So today we have churches in, in our own church body that tear out the pulpits and they do away with the altars and then pretend that they're in communion and unity with churches that are still doing what Christians have done for a thousand years. It's preposterous. Roman Catholics are in the same boat. Now, you have the Novus Ordo masses that are just completely abominable in contrast to the Latin mass congregations, which as Lutherans, we would reject them not doing it in the vernacular, but at least they're trying to be faithful to what they did in the past. Given the choice between Novus Ordo and TLM, I would take the Latin. Like, you can learn Latin. You, can't, you should not learn the evil that's being done in some of those other parishes. And so we're all facing similar problems of a disruption of unity that should exist at the middle level, at the second level. And so the in the article, in the Apology, and the Augsburg Confession, when it discusses the church, it doesn't even talk about the churches going, the individual churches, congregations, going in wild different directions, because it was just, it was inconceivable to them in that day. 
As another exhortation not to forsake local congregations when and where that is possible, I want to point out that Scripture presupposes the existence of such local congregations, the existence of that third level of the church. From Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so you can clearly see, Scripture, here the words of Christ, presuppose the existence of a church to which you can appeal in the instance of a conflict. If at all possible, you should not forsake that local congregation, even if there are heterodoxies or problems in that congregation, you should work to correct those. But do not go off on your own and just sit with your Bible under a tree. Yes, you can do that. That's good study. But that's not church. That's not the communion of the saints. That's not what it means to be a Christian, because Christian life is lived out together with other Christians. It is not just you, the Bible, and God. It's you and other Christians. That local congregation is incredibly important. And so we do not want to have anyone listen to this and think, oh, well, there are X, Y, and Z problems in my local church, so I have to leave and start my own. If those issues are egregious enough, then you've probably already left that church, quite frankly. But if this is the first episode to which you're listening, unless those issues are so egregious that you cannot stay in that body without violating your conscience, stay and try to improve things. Try to correct your erring brothers. Try to make that church a better church. That may be the local congregation where God has placed you to do some good. Again, these are matters of wisdom and matters of conscience. We cannot give you a hard and fast rule because there is no hard and fast rule that applies to every situation. Some things are left to human wisdom. And again, this is one of the reasons that having that second level is so important and why historically it has been a bulwark against many problems in the church because you had the ability to appeal to authority, to appeal to a hierarchy when there were problems in the local church. To some degree, we do not have that today, and certainly many denominations in the U.S. do not have it at all because you just don't have that hierarchy in many traditions. But given the realities of the situation in which we find ourselves, there are going to be certain demands placed on Christians, particularly Christian men, heads of households. And it is incumbent on you to do the best you can with what God has given you, with the wisdom he has given you, with the resources he has given you. Because do bear in mind, you're not alone in this. Even if you are in a situation where your local congregation is becoming apostate, issues are creeping in, false teachings are creeping in, 
you're still not alone. We have the advantage of living 2,000 years after the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. We have a wealth of resources from faithful Christians of the past. We have other Christians. We do have the advantage. It's an advantage and disadvantage, but we do have the advantage of the internet. We can communicate with other Christian men. Know your Telegram chat room, or please don't use it, but your Discord chat room, whatever it happens to be, that's not church. That's not a local congregation. That is not the gathering together of the saints. It can be edifying. It can be important. It can be Christian fellowship, but it does not replace your local congregation. It does not replace that third order of the church. Do not think that that is an alternative to attending church or an alternative to having a local congregation, an alternative to having a local Bible study. Yes, there are many good resources, many good Bible studies that you can access online or via Logos, whatever it happens to be, whatever platform you're using. But that is not the same as having that flesh and blood fellowship with other Christians. That is vitally important to the Christian life. You need that. You need that for accountability. And in the case of the congregation, you need it for the word and sacrament. Yes, again, you can study the word by yourself or at a home Bible study, whatever it happens to be. But part of how the word has always been proclaimed, part of the system God has instituted, is that faithful pastors are to preach the word publicly in the assembled congregation of the saints. That is a vitally important part of the Christian life. But to give you some encouragement, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. In fact, multiple chapters. I recommend you go and read John 9, 10, and 11. But I will read just a little bit from John 10 as an encouragement. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then again later in the same chapter, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This passage, these passages, give us the definition of a Christian. A Christian is a sheep, a sheep who hears the voice of the true shepherd, of the good shepherd, the voice of Christ. That is the voice we hear in Scripture, because Scripture is the true testimony about Christ, the true testimony about God and His plan, the true testimony about God's intentions for us, His children. And we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. That is what makes us Christians. That is what distinguishes the sheep from the goats, the believer from the unbeliever. And you will note, it says that the Good Shepherd calls the sheep by name. Christ knows the name of every single Christian. 
This is the God who named the stars. He can most certainly name and number the elect, those who are Christians, those who believe. He calls you by name, and you hear his voice because you are a sheep, because you are a believer. That is what makes you a Christian. It's not participation in any particular corporation, any particular overarching human entity. You are a member of the church. You are a sheep because you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And that is great news because as it says in the second passage I read, Christ will lose none out of his hand. And so you are a sheep. You hear his voice. He will not lose you. No matter what happens to the church bodies today, no matter what happens to these various man-made entities, and a lot of them are indeed in dire straits, regardless of all that, the Good Shepherd remains, and he still knows your name, he still calls you by name, and he will not lose you from his hands. And so that is excellent good news. That is something always to bear in mind, no matter the conditions of life and the church, lowercase c, as we find it today. I want to reiterate what Corey just said a minute ago about doing the best that you can. I, I hope that in this brief time we've made the case that the best is all three. The first form of the church, the capital C, you basically get for free if you're a Christian. If you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you are among the elect, which if you're a Christian, then you are. That is, that's that's the free square. The second and third, the the broader forms of the church and then the immediate congregation are vital. They're, they're necessary to a properly functioning Christian society, but they are not necessarily givens in the Christian lives that some of us are facing. And so the the best that you can do may be only, hopefully, the best you can do as a faithful congregation. Ideally, the best that you can do as a faithful congregation in a faithful denomination. If you are without one or both of those things, the best that you can do should still be working towards figuring out how to achieve the other two. You know, and for most men, this is, you know, maybe it's a long-term thing. It's a thing that is above your pay grade, it's not something you're able to do, you should still be working with other men to try to figure out how to get there. Because if everything were working, all these would be givens. You know, I would, I think that, you know, if I lived in 1580, I would be able to attend, you know, if, if I were a German in 1580 at least, I would be able to attend a church where these doctrines of these men were being faithfully taught and practiced, and there was support from the prince, from the community, from a broad swath of society. That's a luxury that's been lost today. And so in some cases, the best that we can do isn't the best that could be. But if that is where we are, we should still be doing what we can to work towards it. You know, if you are, if you have a good congregation, if you have a good congregation that's a part of a bad denomination, you should be thinking about some sort of exit strategy. Again, as Corey was talking about schism, it's not that you have introduced error or you have introduced disagreement. 
when a man introduces false doctrine that contradicts scripture, he is the schismatic. He's the one who is separated from God. And if the only Christian thing that you as a believer, as a pastor, as a congregation can do in the third position to maintain your status as a capital C church member is to separate from the second party, to separate from your denomination, you should be willing to do that at some point. It, again, this is these things are always matters of wisdom. There's timing, there are consciences, there are weakly informed consciences. You're not always going to be able to do exactly what you want exactly when you want to do it. This is never something for impetuous men. But if you can see the writing on the wall, you should still be thinking about the next steps. Where do we go from here? In your congregation, in your context, if you see errors coming down the pike, if you think that you can tell that something is going to go wrong, if you just have a bad feeling, start talking to guys. Ideally, you'd be able to fix your denomination. You know, that's, that is the best case, is to say, hey, we're not being faithful here. Let's get back on track. That should always be step one, two, and three. Separation is never done lightly. You know, I, is, I've, as much crap as I'll give the Declaration of Independence, where it talks about long trains of usurpations and abuses, it's not wrong. Men should put up with crap if it's better than the alternative. <laughs> For a time, you want to fix the problem, but it's better to put up with the thing you know than to go off into the wilderness and face other things that you know will go horribly wrong without the protections of organization. So it's never desirable to split. It's sometimes necessary. And so when those moments come, make sure that you have been talking to others and that you're in a position that you can do it without losing track of what it was that that body was originally formed for in the first place. You know, every church body, however it was formed, they had some good intent in their own minds. You know, obviously, we would have doctrinal disagreements, but they thought they were doing something good when they did it. And then later on, when it ceases to be faithful to the original intention, even if perhaps the original intention necessarily painted the trajectory that they ended up on, if something turns out to have betrayed its roots, if getting back to its roots is the best way to approach things, you should be willing to talk to others about doing that. It should never be done lightly, but it must always be in view of, I'm at the local congregational level, how can I be faithful to all the saints in time and all the saints in eternity? How can I be faithful to God? How can I be one with them as part of the body of Christ in preaching and teaching and confessing faithfully? If it involves splitting from the second, if it involves condemning the second, maybe condemnation is enough. You know, we're in such a conflict-averse world today where men are terrified to tell other men that they're wrong. It's the worst thing anyone could imagine. It's pathetic. It may be that if you point out an error, people will be so terrified of conflict, maybe they'll capitulate, which isn't ideal. I mean, it's probably not going to happen. But you, as a matter of conscience, are obligated to first condemn the error that you see before you say, I'm out of here. That's, you can't just get mad and leave. That's petulant. It violates Matthew 18. Where you see error, it must be publicly rebuked for the benefit of all. Because again, most people don't, don't have the aptitude for this stuff. 
And maybe most of you don't have the aptitude. You probably don't, just statistically. That's fine. We're not saying you must all be individual little popes judging all this stuff. You can gather together, and you can among yourselves recognize who are the faithful Christian men who have their heads on straight, who have faithfulness to God in their hearts and minds, who can, if not be leaders, at least be voices that will engage elsewhere to figure out where does your local congregation go from wherever you are to wherever you think you need to be. When things go wrong in the world, it's not an excuse for us to just give up and say, I'm done, I, I'm fed up, I'm, I'm not doing this, this anymore. That's not Christian. That's, that's, again, that's what Job's wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? No, that's not what believers do. That's not what Christians do. You belong to God. Your congregation, insofar as everyone who is there is a Christian, belongs to God. Those are his sheep. And his sheep deserve to have a shepherd whom he will send to guard them. And you must actively be a participant in that. It's to whatever extent those things are miraculous, we don't see the miracle part. We see the functional part. We see men in places doing things, good or ill, and we have to judge that based on Scripture. As we work through these things, it's just vital not to give up, not to say, well, I don't think that you know, the second level's work and I'm done. I'm just going to be by myself. You can't do that. If you can straighten out the second level through the third level, that's great. You should always be focused on the first. You should always be focused on capital C Church because that is your eternal soul, but is not your daily life. The participation that we have with that is spiritual in a way that is very different in form than what we have at the local congregational level. So as you're interacting with other Christians in your neighborhood, in your community, with your own family, that is where your actual Christian life is being led. And that's what you have to keep straight. So to the best of your ability, be faithful to God, be faithful to Scripture, be faithful to the creeds. Hopefully you can be faithful to a confession that itself is faithful, and you can use those things to order all of your activities at the individual level, at the family level, at the congregational level. And if that means reforming or rebuilding or forming anew the second level churches, the denominations, such that they will continue to preserve that which we know is faithful to God, then that is where we should be spending our time. We do the best that we can, and we're always working towards what God wants, because this is none of this is about our egos or about winning arguments. It's about making sure that we can pass on the faith to future generations. This stuff is not just about us. And you know the inheritance that we've gotten from past generations is in shambles because many of them just didn't care. They paid lip service to this stuff, even as they were burning down the very institutions that had been erected by prior generations to them to preserve them. When they got a hold of them, they've turned them inside out and turned them into things that are destroying what would have been our future. So... Either we put out the fire or we move down the road. We got to do something because what we're inheriting is a disaster and it's not okay to just walk away. It's not okay to accept it. We have to fight it. We have to fix it and we have to preserve and keep something, even if it means building anew. Because faithfulness to God means making sure that the future generations after us can have something better than what we have been given. I think that's a. Today, that is a universal statement. In past generations, perhaps it wouldn't have been. 
typically you would hope that you wouldn't be messing with anything. You could just pass on what you had inherited. When you've inherited something that's in shambles, you got to fix it up before you pass it on. And so as we're working through that as in, as Christians in our own local congregations, it, it's a lot of hard work. But just remember that when things are going wrong, in, in an ironic way, that's a good sign. If Satan is messing with your church body or with your congregation, it means that there's something that Satan fears. Focus on the thing that was good there and try to get that back. Try to do more of what Satan fears. Don't do the things that he loves. He tells us that too. If it's in accord with the world, which is if you go back and read John 15, before John 16, the passage I read, it talks about that. The world will love you if you do what Satan wants from you. When the world is coming after you, it means you're doing the, the things that are actually beneficial to the kingdom of God, to obeying God, and to ruining Satan's day. These edifices that we have inherited that are in bad shape, we got to shore them up. We got to give the future something that will preserve their faith, even if they're dumb or lazy. If you build a big enough and strong enough structure, it can coast for a little while. I mean, that's that's no excuse. Ideally, the best thing is for it to be shoring up future generations of men to preserve it so that we would have more men who are competent than we have today. That should be the goal. But when you build up a strong foundation of organization and faithful confession, even in the very worst case, it would still preserve itself for a few generations if men just said the words. That's We know that that will work. And therefore, how much more important is it for us to do better, to say, look, let's do more than just mouth the words. Let's create families and communities and congregations that are going to build this stuff up and preserve it so that if the world is still around in 100, 200 years, churches will be in better shape. On the current trajectory, there won't be any. Christianity is going to go extinct in 100 years on the current trajectory. I don't think it's going to happen. God won't permit it. But we today are part of making sure that that doesn't happen. Not because we can do it by ourselves. In obedience to God, we are members of the body of Christ, with him as the head. And when we obey what the head says, and we act as the hands and the lips and the instruments of God's will in these places, we're going to be preserving the sort of teaching that he wants to see. And that benefits you, your family, your community, and everyone around you. When we build something good, people are going to see it and say, I want to be a part of that. And that is one of the best ways to spread the gospel, simply by being a place that is in opposition to the terrible world around you. As we've been going over this topic, and particularly with regard to that second level, it brought to mind a quote variously attributed Tradition is nicht die Anbetung der Asche, sondern die Weitergabe des Feuers. Translated into English, tradition is not the worship of ashes. Rather, it is the passing on of fire. And I want to make certain that we were entirely clear in this episode that while it is true that it is that first level of the church, the uppercase C church, that is most important, the others are also vitally important. We've gone over repeatedly very clearly why the third level is important, and Woe just mentioned why the second level is important, but I want to emphasize that. 
It is vitally important to pass forward to future generations Christian traditions, Christian institutions. Because if you do not do that, the odds that future generations will be Christian, or at the very least remain Christian, fall off precipitously. You will wind up with apostate grandchildren if you do not pass these things forward. Tradition is by and large good. Tradition is something that is passed forward to future generations to maintain your culture, to maintain your way of life, to maintain the faith. These are things that we pass to our children and then to our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, so that they can build on the foundation that we inherited and pass forward to them. Because ideally, that is what each generation is supposed to do. Pass forward the good that was passed to it by the previous generations, and also whatever additions, good additions, have been built by that generation. You are supposed to leave a world that is better for your children, the one that was left to you by your parents. We live in a time where we are going to have to rebuild many of these institutions because they have been left to decay or deliberately torn down by previous generations. We've gone over that in previous episodes. That is the unfortunate reality. But we are not making the point that these are unnecessary or harmful things. We are not saying that the organization, the higher level organization, the hierarchical organization of congregations into larger bodies, ultimately all part of the capital C church. We're not saying that's bad. That is a good thing. We need that. As human beings, we were designed to live in hierarchy. Everything in the universe is hierarchical. That is how God designed it. God, of course, sitting at the apex of it. But in all things there is hierarchy, in all things there is order. And we should wish to maintain that, to carry it forward, to pass it on to future generations. Yes, we can do only the best that we can with what we have been given, and that is what God demands of us. He is not demanding of us the impossible. We can do only what is possible with what we have been given in the time in which we are living. So don't despair because it looks like the odds are insurmountable. They've been insurmountable before and God has carried through his church. Just take every day as it comes. We've read many times that the trouble is sufficient for the day. You don't need to look for more trouble. You don't need to worry about tomorrow. That's not what Christians do. You trust in God and you do the work in front of you. As a father that is instructing your children and your wife, your servants, if you have them, to use the wording of the catechisms, it is to be the head of the household, to lead as you are supposed to. If you're the wife, that is to submit to your husband and also to help him work out his faith in fear and trembling. That is one of the duties of a faithful wife, not usurping the headship of your husband, but helping him be the head of the household as he should be. And if your children, your duty, of course, is to submit to and honor your parents. This is all hierarchy. This is all order. We know how all of these things work. Our duty as Christians is to do the work that has been set before us by God as best we can with the gifts that he has given us. And we are to do this in joy. Again, not necessarily happiness at all times, because happiness is a different thing. Yes, find happiness in the things that God has given you. 
but ultimately is a matter of joy. It is that expectation, the looking forward to the fulfillment of things, the promises of God. It is belief in Christ, because his word has never failed and never will. And so I'll close out this episode with a brief reading from the Epistle of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <laughs>